Title IX turns 50 this year. Few laws have influenced school sports more. The law prohibits the discrimination based on sex in any programs or activities in all federally funded educational institutions. This includes both middle and high schools, in addition to universities and colleges. But our story today is not focused on the success or the anniversary of this landmark civil rights legislation. Instead, we're turning back the clock to the dawn of the 20th century and to an individual who laid the foundation for women's sports in Arizona. Welcome to Valley 101, an Arizona Republic and AZ Central podcast, where we answer your questions about Metro Phoenix and beyond. I'm producer Kaylee Monahan. I invite you to put on some sweats and get ready for a historical workout. And don't worry, it's not too strenuous. When we think of women's sports, moments like this may come to mind. Reese, got the second to drop. It's an eight-point Arizona lead. Connecticut needs threes. They need them in a hurry. They're not going to get them. The steal from Yaney, and the celebration is on for Arizona. It's all cosmetic at this point. That, of course, was the 2021 Women's Final Four game between the University of Arizona and the University of Connecticut. But just go back a few decades, and women's sports sounded a bit more like this. The electrical engineers, bright sparks to you, have challenged the munition workers, the great guns, to a football match. That's right, took it in, Tessie. After the powder, we shall be seeing a shot or two. First, the great guns in dark shorts swing into action. And then come the bright sparks in light shorts. And what is one mere male ref among so many? That is a clip from British Pathé's archives of two soccer teams in 1943 England during the height of the Second World War. And it was by the early 20th century when ideas of modern exercise started to become more mainstream, especially for women able to attend college. But exercise programs for women were very different from those for men, who could develop their skills with competition in a variety of sports. Early on, women's fitness programs, if you could even call them that, were designed to help women develop poise and grace rather than improving their physical health. It often involved developing correct posture, learning to dance, and other light physical activity, generally with a focus on creating healthy future children. It must also be said that these exercises were reserved for women of a certain social class and race. White women from well-to-do families could afford to give their daughters these graceful lessons. But not every woman saw these classes in posture, walking, and dancing as useful or even fair. In the late 1800s into the early 1900s, the push for women's physical education and inclusion in sports was taking shape. And at the forefront of that push in Arizona was Ina Estelle Giddings. Born on January 14, 1885, in Wilbur, Nebraska. Ina was one of six children born to Curtis Kinsey Giddings, or CK as he went by, and Emma Kate Thompson Giddings. One would not think that that's where you know great people come from, but、uh, her family had been in the Nebraska Kansas area originally from further in the Midwest. 
That's Pamela Stewart, a historian at Arizona State University's College of Integrative Sciences and Arts. Ina's story has become something of a passion project for her, and she's preparing to publish a book about Ina's life. And yes, it's Ina, not Ina Giddings. You know, there's an interesting story there because although she was adamant for as long as far back, but especially in Arizona, while during her time in Arizona, that she was Ina. And she would make that clear again and again and again. However, she had a much younger brother who was like about 20 years younger than her. <laughs> Surprise. Um, and uh, he, because of his age, you know, he was able to sort of tell stories longer than, you know, other family members. And he told his daughters, who are still alive, that um, originally everyone called her Ina. <laughs> and at some point, she became Ina. And I think that also speaks to, for whatever her reasons, like, no, this is who I am, and here's, here's who I'm going to be from here on out. But when that was and why, I, I don't know. And, and that's the only um, source I have for that. From the beginning, Ina was strong, confident, and full of gumption. But how did a woman from small-town Nebraska end up in a slightly bigger town in Arizona? Well, she was a pioneer in every sense of the word. Over the course of her life, uh, in addition to Nebraska, she uh, spent time homesteading as well as teaching in Montana, then also in Oregon, where she was a reconstruction aid trainer during World War I, basically teaching the first generation of physical therapists. And so she did that. And then she went to Turkey for about a, a year and a half to work with refugees there, uh, sort of as an extension of her medical work with the Army Corps during World War I, and then um, was hoping to get her job back in Montana. That did not happen. And so someone that she knew, the um, you know, they used to have the women's dean, dean of women uh, at universities, and someone that she knew from Montana had come to University of Arizona, and she was the one that helped her make that connection and come to um, Arizona. The year was 1920 when Ina set foot on the U of A campus in Tucson. The First World War was over. White American women were given the right to vote. Arizona celebrated eight years of statehood, and the whole country was celebrating the end of the war by roaring into the 20s. At this time, women's sports and physical education were still in their infancy. Especially leading up to her lifetime, but during her lifetime, that sort of end of the 19th century, there were absolutely um, women in particular who were advocating for women's physical health. That included pushing to get rid of or change what women could wear while being active. During the early 1900s, Attention to women's physical health grew from upper society's interest in birthing healthy babies. And while not explicitly mentioned during that time, the messaging here didn't necessarily include minority women or those of lower social classes. A lot of the, these discussions were very racialized. They're talking about wanting to produce good, strong, white babies, middle class especially. And so, you know, how can we have healthier white middle-class women that are going to give birth to these, you know, babies. And so, um, but women sort of got their foot in the door in that way 
And again, we're talking about, you know, who, who's really pushing back or middle-class people who aren't out working on the ranch or the farm or formerly enslaved or in the Jim Crow South or, you know, whatever it may be that is physical labor. And so that idea of, you know, how do you make the case? Um, yes, it might be just, hey, girls just like her on the, the vacant lot, right? They, they're playing until they're told, and she writes about this, until they're told like, okay, enough of that. Now you need to become a lady. And so there are women who, for health reasons, and using the language of motherhood and producing good babies, are already sort of on the stage um, arguing for more physical activity for girls and, and young women. Ina was coming of age during this time. Her interest in physical education started as a girl. Stories from her family recall how she would play with her brothers outside. She wasn't one to be coddled in the drawing room, working on needlepoint. But one of the things she said was, um, and I'll quote her, Mother tried to make a lady out of me, but with four brothers, I was usually drafted into a baseball game on the vacant lot. That's how I got my start in physical education. And then she added, I guess the nearest I ever came to living up to my mother's ambition was when I made Phi Beta Kappa at the University of Nebraska. She graduated with her bachelor's of physical education in 1906 from the University of Nebraska before setting off on her journey across the Western U.S. When she came to Arizona, there wasn't much by way of women's physical education. The course catalog at the time had a class called Physical Culture, available for women, and it's been described as a precursor to women's PE. It clearly states that this is not about strength for women, but it's about attractive womanhood and that they would work on poise, grace, and carriage. That's Kathleen LaRose, better known as Rocky. My maiden name was Rock and Field, and I don't know. Ever since the beginning, they've been teasing me and calling me Rocky. My dad was Rocky, too, at times, so somehow I became Rocky Jr. with no sons in the family. Rocky is one of the first women to go to the University of Arizona with a full sports scholarship when Title IX passed. And she then went on to serve as the deputy director of Arizona Athletics for 34 years before retiring in 2013. I was a Title IX baby. I'm part of the first generation of American women to ever step on the field representing their university in varsity sports. Uh, one of the first, as you mentioned, to get a full ride scholarship. And, um, you know, was there right when Title IX was born. So I look back on my time that I had a front row seat to the evolution of women's sports. Ina had passed away before Rocky came to the U of A, but her influence was still strong on campus. I'm so grateful to Ina Giddings and Dr. Mary Roby, who preceded me, obviously, and uh, is my legacy. They're my legacy, too, uh, to provide the opportunities that I was able to uh, encounter and to achieve. Rocky says that when Ina arrived on campus, she took one look at the university's program for women's physical education and torpedoed it. I'm rolling, I'm always keeping my focus, kicking down the door till it opens, I won't rest, nah, because the 
Ina introduced track, swimming, archery, and horseback riding into the curriculum, as well as team sports. There are many amazing photos of Ina and her students participating in sports in either long skirts or bloomers. One in particular shows a young Ina at the University of Nebraska pole vaulting. Keep in mind, women's pole vaulting wasn't even accepted as an Olympic sport until the year 2000. Ina never bought into the stereotype of the time that the ideal woman shouldn't compete. Here's Pamela again. When she got to U of A, all they had was a little dance program, and she's like, "We need to be outside. We need to use big muscles, as she turned them, and we need to be doing a lot more." And she knew that it was better for women's health and their minds, and you know everything else. And despite fierce pushback from the male leaders of the time. Ina laid the groundwork for women's sports at the U of A. I credit her completely. This is Rocky again. It's interesting, though, back in the early days, how it started to evolve.、Um, you know, she's the one who organized the WAA. That's the Women's Athletic Association. She's the one who came to the conclusion that there needed to be participation awards, and formed、uh, a point system that would allow women to receive. Letter jackets. Now they were clearly not varsity letter jackets. In fact, the University of Arizona voted that there needed to be a circle around the A to indicate that this was a woman's letter jacket and not a varsity award. Ina was not only a believer in women's sports, but she was not afraid to go up to bat for her athletes. She fought tooth and nail to build that department. Um, she, as she add, and I'll quote: She would battle anybody. She scratched the department up from nothing. You know, she pushed against the grain. She did what she had to do, and you know, it's very clear that the male administrators, whether the hallowed McHale or otherwise,、um, you know, were not fans. But she would go head to head and do what she had to do for her students. Pamela adds that Ina also instilled in her students the confidence to fight for themselves. She wanted them to be their own advocates, even though she would gladly roar on their behalf. Of the many stories lingering on campus, ones about the clashes between Ina and James Fred McHale, also known as Pop McHale, are legendary. As Rocky tells it. Mikhail was not a fan of women's sports, at all. She had strong beliefs in sport participation for women, and she made that happen on campus. She was up against、uh, many that disagreed with her, as you can imagine, including our very first、uh, director of athletics, Pop Mikhail. Our basketball arena is named after Pop, and this was before her time. But legend has it that. Pop Mikhail became so angry hearing that there was going to be a women's basketball game in the old Herring Gym that he ordered a football player to flood it with fire hoses the night before the game. 
So I've always heard that that's kind of what Ina stepped into when she got here and that uh, it's unfortunate that we don't have any video of her and Mikhail going at it because I heard that could be quite the show. I did search high and low for any video or audio recordings of Ina. As a firecracker of a woman, I wanted to hear her voice. But like Rocky says, there aren't any known recordings. Pamela says Ina was her own PR machine and that she spoke often and easily to the press. She wrote many letters to the local papers and even did radio spots in the 1930s. And I really hoped that some of that might have survived. But what I, I ended up learning a bit about radio and basically it was always just destroyed after the fact. During her career in Tucson, she served on many academic and civic committees, including the Women's Overseas League, the Red Cross, and the Arizona Education Society. She earned her master's degree in 1925 from the U of A as well. She was right about so much stuff. And, you know, she was also um, oversaw the Arizona Physical Education Association, um, usually not president because a man, you know, had to do that. And so she was connected in, went to conferences. Um, she was always struggling to get money to attend conferences from U of A. And the men, of course, could go and she'd have to figure out the cheapest way and the cheapest room. And, you know, so she was limited in, in a variety of ways. But she, you know, people around the country wrote her letters. So it's, it's fun to see the, that sort of documentation of, I read your article and you are absolutely right. The girls love competition and you're on the right track. I'm so glad to see this published. You know, that sort of thing, which is pretty cool. But there's more to Ina than just her interest in women's sports and physical education. She also belonged to the Tucson Writers Club. Recently, during her research, Pamela discovered some of Ina's poetry through her grandniece. Some of it was written during her time in Turkey after World War I. Others appear to be poems written to women. So one of the things with her, and I've talked to family and also just all of my research, I think in our parlance, we would probably, she would probably categorize herself as a lesbian. However, um, that's not the language that was used then because that meant you were mentally ill. Um, that's not how women who were women-associated women or however we might phrase it, that's not the language they were using. But I will say, you know, her, it's her grandniece who uh, made rather clear that she knew her mother, which would have been Ina's um, sister-in-law, didn't particularly care for Ina because of, as she put it, her lifestyle, and she clarified and meant her being a lesbian. So, you know, again, there are also always a lot of questions that, you know, do you have, as it were, the smoking gun? There was also a handful of boxes full of love letters written to Ina. But sadly, those disappeared into the trash. Pamela says that according to a family member present when Ina's belongings were assessed in 1966, after she had died, the boxes of letters were destroyed, some of them evidently revealing personal relationships. Regardless of her sexual orientation, Ina was beloved by her students and supporters of women's sports. Past students said she always had the mantra, C-O-B-I. Chests out, bottoms in. You can't hold me down. I'm a riser and I'm rising up to stand and fight. Oh, oh, you can't hold me down. I'm a fire and my wings are burning. 
you had her as an advocate, you knew you were in good hands. So for all of those countless students whose lives she affected, who weren't necessarily PE majors, you know, it's just uh, fascinating to think of how many lives she, uh, you know, affected and how everyone I talked to who knew her at all, they were just like, oh, she was just amazing. <laughs> like she was hard or we didn't want to get in trouble with her, but you know, and like, she's that person that everyone remembers. And that's special. For Rocky, who is quite literally an inheritor of Ina's legacy, Ina Giddings is a true grandmother of her career. I always think of Ina as the birth of women's participation in sport. I mean, she is the one. She came on this campus, she fought hard for women to be able to participate in sport. And I always think it's, think it's wonderful that the university has recognized that legacy by naming the former women's PE building and then the physical education building, the Ina Giddings building on campus. But not only that, Tucson recognizes the great things that Ina Giddings did by naming a major corridor here in Tucson, Ina Road. Of course, the controversy is that we all mispronounce her name, right? It should be Ina Road, but I don't think we're ever going to be able to change the whole Tucson community to say Ina Road. But, you know, she homesteaded out here off of Ina Road. She had about 40 acres. And I love that Tucson has recognized her legacy. came here in 1920 as a pioneer, as a rebel, and a fearless experimenter. Special thanks to both Rocky LaRose and Pamela Stewart for sharing their stories and research on Ina Giddings with us. If you want to learn more about women's sports in Arizona, or have other questions about Metro Phoenix, or beyond, drop us a note at valley101.azcentral.com. You can find this show and its sister show, The Gaggle, which breaks down the most important political stories in Arizona, over on Twitter and Instagram at AZC Podcasts. And we're excited to introduce a brand new show by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. With viruses and vaccines at the top of the daily news, Bioscience has become a topic that touches us all. Now the team at azcentral.com is bringing you a brand new podcast that's all about the science of life and where it's taking us. For more, here's Alexandra Watts, host of our newest podcast, The Lab at AZ Central. Hey, Arizona. I'm Alexandra Watts, an audio producer at AZ Central. I'm here to introduce The Lab at AZ Central, a new podcast coming out in January 2022. Inside this lab, we're telling bioscience stories from across the state. If you're wondering what bioscience is, well, it's actually a lot of things. Bioscience is using technology like this giant crane you hear. It's called a gantry crane, and it's scanning plants in a huge field. We've created a virtual reality, like augmented reality field. So you can put on like 3D goggles, cruise through the field. You can select plants, pull up their data. It's like right out of Star Trek. It's truly mind blowing. 
bioscience is also going to a lab that studies fruit flies and watching them brawl, all in the name of science, of course. They pointed towards each other. One of them lunged at each other. See, this guy is already pursuing this one. Bioscience is the study of life. There are a lot of studies, research, and stories. We'll talk about those, but we'll also be asking more. Why are researchers doing things like talking to plants and watching fruit flies fight? What is the purpose of all this research? And we'll find out it's not just about weird science. It's about the future of life itself. You're going to meet some researchers and some scientists but you're also going to meet people at the other end of the line, outside of the lab. People like you and me. What happens in the lab will change their futures. On this podcast, we go inside and outside of the lab to talk to people on both sides and the people working to merge those worlds together. I said, I can't do what I'm doing behind closed doors until I reach out to the community in which I'm hoping to serve in the future and get to know them and then go back into the lab area of research. So put on your protective goggles, wear your close-toed shoes, and join us in the lab at AZ Central. We launch in January 2022. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And make sure to follow our ongoing bioscience coverage at azcentral.com. Be sure to follow AZC Podcasts for updates on when the lab opens. And if you're a fan of Valley 101 or The Gaggle, please share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support these podcasts by subscribing to azcentral.com. I'm your producer, Kaylee Monahan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.